This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you, too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. When I had the distinct pleasure of meeting today's guest, I was struck first by her impressive resume. This highly accomplished woman served as a senior vice president with the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis to 18 years as a human resources executive and employment attorney with many accomplishments along the way. But one central theme has always been there during her professional journey, advancing racial equality. Today, she's created what she calls a movement and believes this assignment was passed on to her before birth. Nikki Lanier, welcome to my podcast. Oh, Liz, thank you for the opportunity. This is just so extraordinary. I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. (laughs) And neither can I. Your new company is called Harper Slade, and you describe it as a racial equality advisory forum. Share with us what is the belief that drives this work. We actually focus, Liz, on racial equity, and it's important to make that distinction between that and equality because we think about equity as proportional fairness that takes into consideration what has uniquely happened to people of color as distinct really from all other people and works to remedy the same. Mm -hmm. And so Harper Slade is a fairly new to market company. We're just 19 months old. And yet in that short period of time, we've been able to help companies far and near really think about how to accelerate and amplify and even activate the full potency of black and brown talent as a macroeconomic imperative. So It was really birthed from this understanding that we've got to finally close these gaps around racial inequity, and we've got a short amount of time to get it done. I'm glad that you brought up that distinction, because this is about diversity as a commitment versus a compliance undertaking. And the work in transforming cultures is about going after systems and not individuals. And you say this really is an economic issue. You look at the demographic trends afoot, we know that uh, America is getting blacker and browner. And that has implications around how the economy performs. When you think about a majority of a citizen body by 2045 really having only episodic experiences with the fundamentals of the American dream and no real experience with how the economy works, not being able to play fully in the economy because of racism and because of lingering racial inequity, that presents a pretty significant conundrum for the society at large. You do call this a movement and you have founded couple of different coaching programs. One is specifically for white women and one is for professional white women. Why is there the distinction? The Rare Woman Coaching Program, so Rare Woman Collective, is a racial equity program suite specifically for white women who are interested in, curious about, want to know more around how to advance racial equity in every single space they hold. This was really birthed, Liz, out of the understanding that because racial inequity is such a calcified norm, 
in our society, the legacy and the lingering affect of the lie that we've all been sold. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, the marginalization of black and brown people. It's great to do that work, kind of chase that down in the workplace, but it can't only happen there. So I really want to empower white women who are in many ways the consciousness curators in their homes and in communities on how exactly to be the stewards over this doctrine in their homes and in communities. And then we also have the Slade Woman, which is another coaching program we have specifically for Black professional women who are looking for help in navigating organizational and corporate spaces that really never contemplated us, never contemplated the way that we show up in in professional spaces. Such an important movement. Harper Slade, the name, is in honor of both of your grandmothers, and they themselves were really trailblazers. Tell us about them. Both my paternal and maternal grandmothers were just quite stalwart women, and both of them birthing eight children. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty ironic that they both of my parents are uh, seven siblings. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, Lenora Harper Robinson, was just immersed in civil rights work and She worked that largely through her community and through her church, really raised children, my father chief among them, to be formidable and Mm -hmm. conscious around the responsibility of being Black and excellent at the same time, all the time. And same is true with my maternal grandmother, Ernestine Johnson Slade, who hailed from Jim Crow South. She was born in like the guts, the vicissitudes of racism in Marietta, Georgia, where she birthed eight girls and taught them the same lessons. And both of my grandmothers were involved in what they called Negro rights initiatives in their day. And they gave birth to children who were very involved in civil rights, who has now, and both of them have given birth to me. (laughs) I see this as work that's passed to me in utero in many respects. You are an only child and you describe having this middle-class upbringing. and, And really you're talking now about your parents, your grandparents, all involved in the civil rights movement. And the stories that you heard around the dinner table each night, in some Mm -hmm. cases were horrific experiences, particularly from your parents. Your dad was a freedom fighter. Both your parents were jailed at one point in time and experienced horrific events. And what's notable about my parents' experience, Liz, is that both of them were fighting for rights they ostensibly already had, Mm -hmm. conferred by the Constitution, which both of my parents have always regarded as elusive, at least for Black people, just the warmth and the protections of the Constitution and its many amendments, which purported to give rights to Black and brown people, which in many respects never did because they fall victim, like the, the tenets of our Constitution, much like the tenets of the law, fall victim to the louder narrative around black and brown marginalization. That's what I heard my whole life. You're so right. That's my upbringing. My childhood was very picturesque in that if you think about, I don't know, the Cosby Show era and a home filled with life and love and laughter and brilliance and intellect and pontification. And both of my parents were college professors. And so they were very gregarious. So they would have the chairpersons of various departments of the college campus where we lived and the, the deans and oftentimes the college president would descend upon our home in the evenings and my parents would drink their brandy and their <laughs> sherry and my father would smoke a cigar and the women would talk about the great literary works of, of black authors and, and the Harlem Renaissance and the men would talk about, again, the Constitution and the plight of black America. That's what I heard my whole life. And so that absolutely is still with me today. I heard you once say that growing up, you never hated white people, but you were absolutely afraid of them. Why? The stories that I heard were never about bemoaning or besmirching white. I never heard white 
in the context of being condemned, but I've almost always heard about white people in the context of the harm they caused mm. to parents and their friends. All the jailing and the and the beatings and being hosed by fire hoses and bitten by police dogs, those are all at the hands of white people. And so mm. what that left in terms of the picture in my mind is that white people are to be feared and that black and brown no good and that they are the architects of our suffering. That's a quiet narrative that came with me in my early years, and if I'm honest, is still with me on some level today. This, I think, is the root of the issue, because many of us, I would argue many of your listeners, probably have the same kind of experience, but on the opposite construct, so that when we don't grow up around the other, right, what we are left with is the narrative of the other. Mm -hmm. And left unchecked and unassessed and uninterrupted, we grow up as adults really with this fairly fossilized view of what the other person is, and it's harder to disrupt that as we get older. So that's part of what I think is important in the way that we work our work, both with uh, Harper Slate and the coaching programs that I run. I want to come back to something you mentioned a moment ago about your parents were both college professors and you grew up on the Hampton University campus, and you talked about those evenings that your parents would have and dinner <laughs> parties that they would host. And there's one story that I just love for you to share that your mom's hosting this dinner party and none other than poet laureate Maya Angelou is there. And apparently the topic of conversation was your most recent English essay. What happened? <laughs> yeah, I was horrified. That's what happened, Liz. So I was maybe seventh or eighth grade. And my mother, if you could like picture like a Diane Carroll, Claire Huxtable mix, my mother has always been that very kind of grand, elegant, eloquent prolific Black woman. And she is extraordinarily proper, has always been. Her elocution is spot on. And she wanted you to be that way too. <laughs> oh, yeah, if you can't tell already, people are like, why do you talk like that? I'm like, blame my mama. I don't know. She, it, she was all, it was all about that. So my mother was an English professor and she was a chairwoman of the English department at Hampton University when I matriculated there. And part of her responsibility was to bring these great literary figures to campus. Now, because we lived on campus, both of my parents worked there, so we qualified for faculty housing. And so she would have these very grand dinner parties when she would have these literary beauties come, come to the city. And on this evening, as I was coming back from the movies with my friends, I remember coming through the front door. I hear my mother's voice before I see her. She calls me to the dining room, and there's probably 20 or so folks around this dining room table, and they are just finishing dessert and at everyone's table setting is my essay, a copy of one of the essays that I'd written for my English class. And it was just all marked up even more than it had been <laughs> originally by my, my teacher. There was lots of discussions around the dangling participles and the predicates <laughs> and the subject verb agreements and immature use of language. And my <sighs> mother sat right between she and Dr. Angelo. And I mean, in seventh grade, Liz, the weight of the moment, it was definitely lost on me at that point. Now I, I can appreciate it. Then I was just livid. I was embarrassed and I was livid. Oh, my gosh. I love that story. I love that story. All right. We're going to fast forward now to 2020. And you describe making the ultimate professional pivot in your life, not unlike what many people did as a result of the pandemic. You went on your first spiritual fast. Share with us this journey that you went on. 2020, the year that sat us all down, was a year of extraordinary reckoning for so many of us. And for me and my family, given everything that I just shared, the acuity of the race-rooted issue and once again, having to reconcile the very loud worry about how our home country feels about us, how mm -hmm. my own country feels about me, that was extraordinarily heavy for me that year and for my entire family. And I 
felt entirely out of control. I felt a sense of hopelessness. I felt lost and terrified. I was sad. And yet I had to work. So that year was also the year that many of us Black leaders in in Louisville, Kentucky, where I live, where Breonna Taylor was killed, we were called to be all things to this community and to Mm -hmm. come in and try to help soothe and recast narrative and assist. And I was overwhelmed just about every moment of that year, in addition to trying to navigate the horror of COVID. I just decided to dig into what I knew to be true about God in more deep ways, more deeply commit to a Christian walk. And I know that there are certain things that come through prayer, and there's certain other things that come through prayer and fasting. Mm. So I did the latter. I sought God. I sought His heart, His face, His voice, His direction, and what I am to do with His unquenchable desire to right the wrong of racism and to be an architect and a beacon of hope and light in a world that seems to be filled with the degradation of decency and unkindness and hate and that racism is still ostensibly winning. How can I distinguish myself as a voice of real transformation in this space? And so what was illuminated to me as as a part of that 30-day fast was to leave the Federal Reserve, a job that I loved and cherished at that point and had some really great successes in, and start Harper Slade and to work warily in the area of advancing racial equity. Well, you were doing tremendous work in this area, not only with Harper Slade, but many, many accolades that you have received. You're also a published author and a keynote speaker. And uh, certainly that was another one of your mother's missions, making sure that you had impeccable credentials (laughs) as a speaker. You just talked about that a little while ago. But there is one other secret talent that you have, I understand, the karaoke. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Liz. What's your go-to song? Oh my gosh, Proud Mary, Tina Turner. <laughs> That's how I warm it up. Listen, karaoke is an obsession. It's probably not even healthy at this point how much I adore <laughs> that outlet, but I love it, love it, love it. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Folks, I would love for you to check out Nikki's website, harperslade.com. I invite all of you to do that. We're going to have that for you in our show notes. Nikki, such a pleasure to be with you once again and to support the great work that you're doing certainly helping all of us understand the collective state and where our efforts should lie so that we can have transformation in this world and we can have equity and equality both. Thank you so much. Oh, bless you, Liz. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thanks to all of you. May each of us do our part with grace to bring into existence a new tomorrow. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.